Hello, everyone. Welcome today. We are so glad to have you. Um, my name is Jazz Heim, and I work here at the UVA Health Foundation. And I am just here to introduce you to our wonderful speakers for today. Um, I hope you're here for the talk, uh, for this talk about first discoveries in healthcare make, coming out of here at UVA. Um, I am going to be available after the talk if you have any questions about anything you hear about today. And I also have some of my colleagues in the audience if they want to wave their hands. And they're also available if you have any questions. So today we're going to talk about some really exciting topics, some things that are truly novel that are happening here at the University of Virginia first. Um, and I want to thank UVA Lifetime Learning and the UVA Alumni Association for their partnership in putting this talk on. So first, I'm going to introduce our moderator for today, Peggy Shupnick. Margaret Shupnick received her PhD in biochemistry from the University of Wisconsin and performed postdoctoral training at the Harvard School of Public Health. Her research interests center on hypothalamic and steroid hormone regulation of transcription, as well as steroid contributions to breast and endometrial cancers. She was on faculty at Harvard Medical School with appointments at Massachusetts General Hospital, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute prior to her recruitment to the University of Virginia. She has served in several leadership positions nationally in the Endocrine Society, Federation for the Study of Experimental Biology, and the International Study of Endocrinology. She is currently the Gerald Orbach Professor of Endocrinology and the Senior Associate Dean for Research in the School of Medicine. In this role, she oversees basic, clinical, and translational research, all things you'll hear about today, and joint oversight for the graduate student and MSTP programs, new buildings and facilities for research, leads strategic planning and implementation for research, and participates in faculty recruitment and retention. So in a nutshell, she's essential to all of the research that happens here at the School of Medicine at UVA. So without any further ado, here's Peggy. Well, good afternoon, and thank you so much for coming and sharing some of your visit to the University of Virginia with us. Uh, as, as you could probably hear, I've been here a while, <laughs> and I just want to say that I can't remember a single short period of time where there has been so much incredibly exciting new research and outcomes occurring here in the School of Medicine or at the University of Virginia. I have the distinct pleasure of introducing to you two of the people whose research have been highlighted not just here at UVA, but around the world. The first of our speakers will be uh, Jonathan Kipnis, Yoni, who is a Harrison Professor of Neuroscience. And he's going to share some work which rewrote the textbooks in neuroscience and physiology. And that was the discovery or rediscovery or proof of a new link between the brain and the immune system, which opens up whole new possibilities in understanding both developmental and dysfunctions in neuroscience, and new ways that we can go about curing some of those dysfunctional or diseases in neuroscience. The second of our speakers, Jeff Elias, is a professor in neurological surgery. And his pioneering work used non-invasive techniques, focused ultrasound, to actually cure tremors. And this opens up a whole new world of very personalized medicine, where people who are conscious during what used to be almost medieval procedures on the brain can participate in helping the physician direct these curative therapies to them. The way we're going to conduct this panel today is uh, you're going to see as little of me as possible. I'm just going to yield the floor first to Yoni and then to Jeff. And then afterwards, we'll all come up on stage. So if you could hold your questions till you've heard both of these uh, presentations, we'd be uh, very grateful. So now, thank you very much. And I'd like to introduce Yoni Kipnis. Well, 
Thank you very much, Peggy. Uh, everybody can hear me, right? So I don't need this second mic, I guess. One is enough. Okay, so my presentation is up and my title is this. Okay, so we can, we can move. Well, thanks for inviting me and thanks for coming. And uh, I hope it will be very basic research. It's all in mice. Uh, but I hope one day it will apply to, actually I will show one slide from humans, uh, but I hope, you can, you, can you hear me well now? You can't? I'm, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing signs that people can't hear me. Everybody hears me? Okay, good. So what's unique about neurological disorders? And uh, maybe my clinician colleagues will disagree with me, but, but and I'll, I will kind of disappoint you now, because what's really, uh, what's really unique about them is that most of them have no efficient therapy. But the good thing, at least for us, is most have immune component. So the brain is not disconnected from the immune system. Every immune, every neurological disease has some sort of immune component, okay, to it. So brain is a very complex organ, right, composed of two hemispheres and lots and lots of different areas and many, many different circuits. All are, it's like a major computer that computes all our body. So the neuroscientists, classical neuroscientists, perceive the brain as a collection of neurons. And so if I ask you what's the most important cell in the brain, you will say the neuron. It probably will be true. But if I ask you what the most abundant cell in the brain, you will still say neuron, and that will be wrong. Because in addition to neurons, there are many other cells in the brain. But neuroscientists primarily study neurons. And so basically, you study about a third of the organ by only studying neurons. So in addition to neurons, there are other cells called the glia cells. So we have glia that actually wrap around the neurons, right, to allow a rapid transduction of the signals. There are other cells called astrocytes. They provide all the nutrients to the neurons. And there are small cells here called the microglia. Those are the immune cells in the brain. Then sense what's going on in the body and report it back to the brain. So if we look into microglia in a live mouse, what's happening is this, about 10 to 12% of the brain is constantly on the move. So these green cells, these are the macrophages which are sitting inside your brains, in this case it's a mouse brain, and constantly moving and surveying the environment. And then this is the brain, and if we look above between the brain and the skull, we have the area where even more immune cells are uh, present. And again, they all communicate the periphery to the brain. Um, and as you know, the immune system is our defense system, right? So if something goes wrong with our defense system, it has to communicate to the brain. And so in many neurological disorders, the, the defense system is actually uh, not working. So the way we perceive it, the little cells I showed you in the brain, those are, if you wish, they're maybe the trash collectors. They, the brain is a very active organ, produces lots of, lots of waste material. And so this waste material needs to, be needs to be cleaned, and so these immune cells are cleaning it. And the cells in the periphery, peripheral immune cells, are telling these guys how to do and what to do. Now, when these guys are not functioning, and they will not be functioning in several neurological disorders, and in aging, for example, these guys disappear completely, or at least most of them are gone, then these guys don't do their job well. Now, the difference, the beauty, why concentrate, you would ask me, on these blue guys and not the rest of the brain? Because these blue guys, which are the immune cells of the brain, are the only cells in the brain which are replaceable. You cannot replace neurons, you cannot replace astrocytes or any other cells, but these cells could be replaced. So we have to understand what goes wrong with them in different neurological disorders. We could fix them or replace them with the better ones. And of course, when these cells go, 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 go nuts, like in multiple sclerosis, then of course these, these blue cells are tearing the brain apart. And so the idea is to understand and to remain the balance between the, between the good and the bad within the brain. So let me show you one example about immunity and autism. So I don't know how many of you are, are, are familiar with autistic kid, but I would imagine at least a few of you would know at least one autistic child in this room, right? So if you ask the parents, uh, um, you, you would, they would tell you two things. A, most autistic kids have some immune imbalances. Uh, that's very well documented. But you can also, with about 25 or 30% of parents report that when their child gets sick, with like sickness, with illness, with fever, uh, they would actually, the symptoms actually would go away. And so now, if you just Google it, just Google fever and autism, and you will see amazing movies on, on, on the internet. And so what we wanted to understand is how the immune system participates in autistic features. Now, that is very difficult to mimic autism in mice. 
But what you could do is you could test a social interaction. Mice are a very social creature. So if you have a cage with a mouse and with the object, and both are in little, little cages, then we put another mouse here. And so the mouse will spend most of the time with the mouse and not with the object, okay? You can see here on a heat map, majority of the time this mouse, which is free, free to explore, will stay with the other mouse and less so with the object. Because mice just, they want to talk to each other, right? So they're social. Now, but if we take a mouse without functioning immune system, it wouldn't care. It would just wander around and will not care. But if we take now this mouse without functioning immune system and give them back immune cells, they now will be fine, absolutely normal. Now, if we look in autistic brain, in autistic kids, um, the areas within the brain are hyper-connected. So imagine now uh, every little town within Virginia becomes a major hub. So it will be very maybe easy to go from Charlottesville to Roanoke, but it will be a mess in the skies, right? So that's what's happening in autistic brains. You have too much connectivity. And so we checked our mice, and we showed also that in our mice, which don't have functional immune systems, there is too much connectivity in the brain. Brain is like hyperactive. And if we just replace their immune system, we calm down the brain. And now the brain is not as hyperactive. So peripheral immune system changes the way our brain operates. And that's pretty cool. So the question is how to target this immune system, which is associated with the brain. So what are the ways for the cells to get in and out of the brain? And so it has assumed for decades, for centuries, that the immune system and the brain are not sitting, not, not talking to each other, and therefore there is no need to study how they interact. But every other tissue in our body has two types of vessels. We have the blood vessels. Those vessels bring in all the goodies into the tissues and also the immune cells. And we have the lymphatic vessels, and those take away all the waste we produce, all the tissues produce, and also serve for immune cells trafficking out. Now, the problem is that the brain does not have, or did not have, or we thought it doesn't have, lymphatic drainage. And so the question is, how does the brain get rid of its toxic compounds, right, of its waste? Um, so what happens your brain sits within the skull, but it's not touching the skull. So if you turn your head around, it won't touch the skull because there is this area called the meninges and it's filled with the fluid called the cerebrospinal fluid, the CSF, okay? So imagine this is the skull, there's a fluid around, and this is your brain. So this fluid which is around the brain can actually penetrate the brain. It goes into the brain, penetrates the brain, washes the brain, and then removes whatever toxins are produced out back into, into this, this fluid space. And the question is, how is this fluid then being filtered and how it's being cleared? Because we produce a lot of this fluid, right? We're making new one all the time. So it needs to, to come out. And so we were just very, very lucky to realize that there is this uh, vessels next to the major blood vessels, which we, which we uh, by uh, guessing or by uh, divine providence, realize that those are actually lymphatic vessels of the, of the brain. I'm not going to go into the details, but those vessels are actually, they are lymphatic, they express all the, all the, all the right markers. And then we, sa we said, okay, are these vessels actually functional? So if this is, this is the major sinus that takes away all the blood, and next to it, sitting lymphatic vessels. And the question, what I wanted to see is, I want to see that if I have a waste material in my CSF, it will actually get out into a lymphatic. If I can show that, then I am proving that these vessels are actually draining the, the brain. And so what we did now, we injected the red, if you want, red waste, waste which is labeled with a red marker, right, so we can see it, into the CSF, and we labeled all the blood vessels with the green. So that you can see here, the blood flows here, and all the red waste which was in the CSF, in the fluid around your brain, is now collected into this vessel and is being drained out. So we were very lucky, as, as Dr. Shopnik mentioned, this, uh, this study was highlighted in many, many journals. So there's a Washington Post article, there was a Time Magazine article, I don't know why I'm clicking here. Okay. Um, uh, we have The Guardian was writing about us, we even have now a Wikipedia page, so it's all good. It was discovery of the year. I mean, we were very, very, very lucky. Uh, but the question is, is it just a discovery which is cool, or does the discovery have any effect on brain function, and whether we can actually have, we, actually, we can actually use those, these vessels to tweak neurological disorders. And so the one we went for is um, Alzheimer's disease and aging. Those are the two I'm going to show you a little bit here. So first of all, we need to make sure that we can actually take these vessels and destroy them. Because in animal research, unlike in humans, if we make a disease worse, it's still pretty good. Okay, so for humans, we want to cure diseases. But for mice, we, if we make a disease go much worse, 
it's a good thing because we understand now what potentially goes wrong with the disease, right? So we said if the vessels are playing role in the disorders, we need to find a way to ablate them, to kill them. And so we developed a method to kill those vessels very nicely. I won't go into details. And so the idea now, the fluid goes in and washes the brain, right, or here. So it goes in, washes the brain, comes out, and then we say it goes into these vessels. And the question is, can we treat, can we target these vessels as a therapy for Alzheimer's disease, for example? So the idea is like a plant, okay? Plant has a pores, pores open, water evaporates, and then more water comes, comes through, right? So if you, if you clog the pores, and you water your, your flower, it will still die, right? So the same idea. You need these vessels to allow the waste to come out of the brain. So what we suggested is in a young brain, in a normal brain, you have uh, water comes in and removes all the waste through these lymphatic vessels. But in aging, we know that from peripheral tissues, in aging, lymphatic vessels are not functioning. And so in aging, the water will not be able to come in very efficiently and won't be able to remove the waste that brain produces very efficiently. And so basically, the brain will be like a clogged sink. Okay, and that what we believe is in the basis of Alzheimer's disease. So yes, you can now take a spoon and scoop the water out, or you can go all the way to the clog and see if you can actually open the clogged vessel. That's, that, that's, that's what I'm going to show you in the next five minutes or so that I have. I have 10 minutes, okay. Okay, so. Again, so I'm switching from telling you stories from showing you the results, and you know, hopefully that the result, my results are supporting my stories. So here is, again, this is the result now, right? So what we do here, you see the red thing? So the red is, again, we take a tracer, we take something which is labeled, which we can see, we inject this thing into the water within the brain, in the CSF, in the periphery, and this thing penetrates into the brain, right? So now we see that the penetration I showed you in the cartoon is real because I put the dye in the, in, the, in the periphery of the brain, and now it fills the entire brain. So you can see here, after five minutes it goes in, after 15 minutes the whole brain is filled, after two hours it's almost all gone, if I wait another hour it will be all removed, because again, it's something, it's, 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 a, it's a molecule that basically labels the water, if you wish, right? So water goes in, and water goes out, and so the, whatever waste compounds are there are being washed through. So now let's look at the three-month-old mouse. Three-month-old mouse equals to about 21-year-old adult. And by the way, it's like, um, it's, we call them young adults. So 21-year-old, let's, let's assume it's 21-year-old, okay? So nice perfusion through the brain. Now we're looking into two-year-old mouse. This is like a 98-year-old human, okay? And you see there is absolutely no perfusion. Brain does not perfuse. Nothing goes in, nothing, no, nothing goes in, nothing comes out, right? So all the waste that the brain will produce will stay within the brain. Now the question is, can we take now this three months old, so now we want to do two things. I as a scientist want to make a three months old look like a two year old, and you as a potential patient in the future, you want me to make this brain and make it of course look younger. I mean this is more difficult, but I'll show you towards the end, but now what I can show you, if we take young, young mouse, and we just clog, ablate these lymphatic vessels, the brain will look like the old brain, okay? So by clogging these vessel, vessels, by clogging this exit out, we're actually killing uh, ability of the brain to perfuse and to clean itself. Okay, so now what we're doing, we're doing something different. Now, instead of injecting a tracer, we're injecting amyloid beta. For those of you who don't know, this is the basic molecule involved in Alzheimer's, okay? So the soluble amyloid beta is okay, but once it starts aggregating, that's not good, right? So we inject now soluble amyloid beta, it's labeled, it's in green, into the CSF and we see what's happening. Now this is a normal mouse, you see red, those are the lymphatic vessels, and you almost don't see any green because it's all has been removed. But now we kill lymphatic vessels, we kill the gate out, and we again inject amyloid beta. And that's what we see. There is no red because all the red is gone, we killed the vessels, instead now amyloid beta aggregates and stays there in the meninges, okay? And it does not, not only it stays there, it also creates a tons of inflammatory response. Now the problem is in mice we never see, in mouse models of Alzheimer's, we never see um, uh, meningeal inflammation. 
hominingeal aggregation. But in humans, or in humans we do. Actually, the first amyloid beta was isolated from human meninges. This is the original paper at UCSD. And this is a human, this is a normally healthy human uh, images. You see no red, no amyloid beta. It's about 80 year old per person who died without Alzheimer's. And this is a patient, uh, Alzheimer's patient. All the red is amyloid beta around the blood vessels within the meninges. Now in mouse models, we never get it. And the reason is because our mouse models of Alzheimer's, they have accelerated production of amyloid beta, but they die young, not enough time for vessels to age, not enough time to develop a full-blown real Alzheimer's in the mouse. So we said, okay, can we now mimic real Alzheimer's in the mouse by ablating lymphatic vessels? So now we take actually Alzheimer's mouse model, which normally shows no inflammation in the meninges, we kill these vessels, and now we actually see real amyloid plaques in the meninges, which much closer mimics human disease. So if nothing else, we can test maybe now drugs for Alzheimer's disease in a model which is more reliable. But of course, and of also the memory deficits are more substantial. And here again, now we're looking inside the brain, we're looking at the plaques, amyloid beta plaques, those that are killing neurons, and you can see that in mice without functioning lymphatics, those plaques are larger and there is more of them. So just by killing those vessels, we have exacerbated Alzheimer's disease. And this is another model. So the question is, does Alzheimer's disease, maybe, maybe it starts in the meninges. So can we delay or ameliorate or maybe even reverse Alzheimer's disease and other age-associated diseases through modulation of meningeal lymphatics? That's the question, that's the goal of our lab. And I'll show you some of the, idea, some of the data that we have. So I showed you that young mice perfuses very well and old brain doesn't perfuse. And so the question is, can we reverse it? Can we make the old brain to perfuse as well as the young brain? And people ask me if uh, uh, cranial massage is good. And I said, no, I'm, I, I'm, I would volunteer for it any moment. I don't, I'm not sure if it will help, but definitely it will, feel me, feel me, feel me, will make me feel good. Anyway, so here, so this is our first attempt to do this. So here we developed, a, it's a, we can do it either viral, either virally deliver the, 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 the molecule, or we can actually deliver it as a, as a gel. We put it on, we call it a shampoo. So we put it on the top of the head. This is a viral delivery of the, of the, of the growth factor for, for these lymphatic vessels. And so now the old mouse actually starts draining much better and compared to the, wild, to the young mouse. And so here again, we're looking in the, at the young mouse, perfuses well, old mouse doesn't perfuse. Now we put this shampoo, if you wish, we put this gel with the growth factor on top of mouse's head, which allows these vessels to be more functional. And what we see is that now the... Now the old guys are perfusing similarly to young mice without treatment. And this is, so this is, the, this is normal mouse and this is a normal aged mouse and after treatment the aged mouse goes all the way equal to the level of the control. So we can enhance perfusion through the brain in very, very aged mice. Of course the question, does it really do anything with the brain function? And so I'll show you here some data. This is a very short treatment for only one month in a not very, very old mice. So we're now doing much longer experiments, but even here after one month of treatment in the old mice, and about this maybe like 60, 70 years age, if you wish, human, human age, we actually see a very substantial and significant, statistically significant, a real one, improvement of memory performance in mice just by treating those vessels. And in Alzheimer's mice, unfortunately, the results are not as amazing as I would want them to be, but still we see a marginal but a substantial improvement in learning in a, a Alzheimer's mice. And again, this is only after one month of treatment. So what we're doing now is we try to treat them for longer times. So what we're saying in the lab now, we are not probably going to cure Alzheimer's, but our goal is to push Alzheimer's to the age where nobody lives. Because you know that you could develop Alzheimer's at the age of 70 or at the age of 90. But if you live long enough, you definitely will develop Alzheimer's. And so the question is one, why some people develop it at 70 and others at 90. So we believe that the function of lymphatic vessels actually will predispose people to develop it later or earlier. And if we make these vessels function very, very well, we potentially can push Alzheimer's to really age or like a 150 or so when nobody lives unless, of course, my colleague scientists who try to prolong our lives will make us live now 200 years. And then we'll be back, back to the challenge. So what I showed you uh, here 
is that meningeal immunity affects brain function. I showed you the example from, uh, from um, uh, autism. And the meningeal lymphatics, they connect CNS with the immune system. They are impaired in aging. I didn't show you this, but actually I did show this, yes. And they regulate perfusion through the brain and removal of toxic compounds. And finally, modulation, uh, oh, oops, I apologize. I don't know why it's jumping. Uh, modulation of the meningeal lymphatics will alter Alzheimer's pathology and also aging. And so this is the most important slide. These are all the folks who did all this uh, work in my lab here at UVA. Lots of lots of people, uh, very talented students and trainees and, uh, and, and, and staff. And of course, my uh, other uh, colleagues, collaborators and, and, and funding. Thank you very much. Great. Uh, I'm Jeff Elias. I'm a neurosurgeon here at the university, and I'm, we're going to switch, obviously switch gears. Uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm a medical doctor. I'm a neurosurgeon, and I'm going to talk about clinical research. And, you know, the clinical research has to do with um, research on patients, and usually has to do with um, comparing treatments or designing new treatments. So we've had the opportunity to investigate a new treatment for some of the problems that we see uh, in the clinic every day, and I'm going to talk about that. And uh, that topic is is focused ultrasound. And um, I'm going to before we get into the the, uh, the 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 newer procedure that we're proposing, I'm going to uh, take you into the operating room to see the type of problems that we deal with. I'm a I'm a neurosurgeon. I don't deal with strokes or brain tumors or spine surgery problems, but I deal with a lot of uh, neurodegenerative conditions like Yanni was talking about, problems like Parkinson's disease or central tremor, or epilepsy problems. And so we have uh, treatments that we use uh, to treat these problems. Like Yanni said, we don't cure a lot of things in medicine. Uh, we do have a few cures. There are some cures. But we manage uh, problems or, or ease the burden of the disease on patients. So I'm going to show you, I'm going to take you into the operating room um, and show you what, what we do in, in our operating room. This is a patient uh, with a tremor problem. You'll see in just a second, he has a, he has a Parkinson's tremor. We put him in this device. It's a clamp, and it's kind of a stereotactic or coordinate system so that you can see behind the drapes. You can probably see them inserting a probe uh, into the brain, and it is a bit med medieval as... Uh, Peggy mentioned, but it can, it's a very effective treatment. It's been around for a few decades. We can insert, if we're in the right circuits of the brain, we can stop some of these problems. This is a testing procedure where we put the probe in and electrically stimulate with just a little bit of current the area, and you can see that it'll stop, it'll stop the tremor. So if we're in the right place, we, we can stop the tremor. So the patient has to be awake so that we can confirm or validate that we're right in the exact spot that we want to be. Um, and then we can implant uh, a pacemaker device to stimulate this area all of the time. That's called deep brain stimulation. Uh, or we could do a little ablation, heat, heat the area up, and, and stop, stop the tremor. Um, so this is kind of the way that we mostly do it. Uh, it involves putting a probe in the brain, testing the patient. The patient's awake. They've had a hole drilled in their head. It's a very difficult procedure for people to go through, but it can be very effective. So back in 2010, my partner uh, uh, in neurosurgery, Neil Cassell, was very uh, instrumental in bringing this new technology to UVA. He, he coordinated a partnership between the state of Virginia and, and the School of Medicine to bring this focused ultrasound technology uh, to UVA. And you, you can see this is a schematic of the, the center. It's behind the hospital. If you drive past the hospital, you won't see it. It's in the back, and it's basically a trailer. Um, it's got an MRI inside of the trailer, and you can see here that the, uh, this is a regular MRI, and there's an ultrasound uh, transducer helmet, basically, that, that sits in the MRI. It's, it's an MRI-compatible ultrasound, so it's really two technologies. It's ultrasound and MRI, and so there are a lot of potential advantages to that. You know, with MRI, we have 
really the highest quality images or anatomic precision to look at the brain. Most people don't realize it, but MRI is a very precise or sensitive uh, thermometer. We can, we can monitor the temperature inside of the brain to about one degree Celsius uh, change. So it's a very sensitive uh, thermometer. And then the focused ultrasound is a, is a different type of energy that we can deliver to the brain. Um, it's different than radiation. You know, everybody knows about radiation. It has lots of positive effects, but some negative effects as well. Hopefully the, the ultrasound has more positives and much less negatives. But we've never really been able to use ultrasound for brain problems because we couldn't transmit ultrasound uh, through the skull. And uh, just a few more words about ultrasound. I think every ultrasound is a pressure wave. So if we send sound waves or uh, it's a pressure wave through tissues of the body, uh, it exerts a pressure on the tissues. As I mentioned, when, when we focus at the skull, most of the uh, acoustic energy, the ultrasound, is reflected. Not much of it goes through through the skull. But if we change the frequency of the ultrasound or we use the correct frequencies, we can transmit some of it through the skull. But that's still not really good because as it goes through the skull, it kind of diffracts in all different types of directions. The real advance in the last 10 years or so has been this ability to focus all the diffracted ultrasound to a single point. It's a lot like your, the lens of your eye. You know, people that have astigmatism, when the light comes into your, to your lens, it diffracts and it doesn't focus the image very well. But if you can correct that astigmatism, you could bring it all into, into focus. And so that's what we've been able to do uh, in the past uh, decade or so. This is the ultrasound transducer helmet that I mentioned. It has a 1,000 individual ultrasound units. So each one can be individually controlled. So you can see how when each one of them uh, goes through the skull and, and then is reflected if we uh, change the phase, if we shift them, we can bring them all into focus uh, to one spot. That's a real powerful um, concept here with focus ultrasound and why we've now been able to think about using it for the brain. So this is the, uh, this is the contemporary system that's in, in, our, uh, in our center. This is the, the MRI. It's a three Tesla MRI. It's made by GE. This is the uh, MRI-compatible uh, ultrasound helmet. You can see here we can simulate or plan the, the, the procedure before we start. We can simulate how all 1,000 beams of ultrasound are going to travel through the skull and where they're going to go, and then we can bring them into focus. This is the temperature aspect of the MRI. So when we do actually do the treatment, you can see we can uh, measure the temperature uh, of, of the treatment. And we can also especially make sure that the temperature in the intervening tissue does not change so that we don't want any treatment to go around in other areas of the brain except right at the target or the focus of the, of the, of the procedure. And then we can call a, a, cause an ablation deep in the brain. This is in a, in a tremor area, just like you saw with the video when I put a probe down into the, this area, this is a tremor area of the brain. Uh, we can now focus... Uh, a lot of acoustic energy to the same spot without any incision or hole in the skull. So in 2011, um, we plan to try to use this uh, technology in patients with essential tremor. These are patients with severe tremor that lose the ability to feed themselves or to write their name. They can't text. Um, they can't put in their earrings or brush their teeth. Uh, it's a, it can be a very disabling problem. We like, really like the idea of trying out this procedure uh, with that, this patient group because they, they do have a lot of disabilities uh, and they have a symptom that we could measure in the treatment. So if they go in to have the procedure, we could measure their tremor, just like you saw in the operating room. And if we delivered the right, um, uh, the right treatment or the right ultrasound treatment to the correct spot, we knew we'd probably stop the tremor. So that was the plan. 2011, we, we embarked on treating 15 patients. Um, and, and I'm actually going to show you a video now of, of what that looks like. So this is, um, this is using focused ultrasound in a patient with essential tremor. 
and I think it really illustrates uh, how the how we're able to bring a lot of technology uh, into the operating room to to solve a problem. And let me just show you this video. I'll kind of uh, uh, discuss it. The patients still have to wear the frame uh, to immobilize their head. We haven't gotten around doing that yet. We shave their head. The FDA makes us shave their head to make sure that we don't get some type of scalp burn. We haven't done the testing to avoid uh, not shaving the head yet, so we're still doing that. But I think you can uh, realize this patient has very severe tremor. She can't write. Um, she can't drink a glass of water uh, without a straw and a lid. Um, and so now we're preparing her to put her into the MRI scanner. This is a different type of procedure uh, where we actually do the procedure inside of the MRI. So we don't have a lot of procedures where we actually watch the treatment deep inside the brain while we're doing it. So she goes into the MRI, and we do the whole treatment inside of the MRI. And there you can see we, we've got a beautiful image of, uh, of her brain and, and the, the target area that we want to treat. Uh, and then we use a lot of uh, computer-simulated planning to plan exactly where we want to treat uh, with the ultrasound. Here you can hear a little bit of the sound of the MRI if you've ever ha had an MRI. This is our, uh, our estimated target uh, for the treatment. You can see that the ultrasound is focused uh, ideally here. So we're going to uh, make an adjustment in just a second so that the, ultrasound, the natural focus of the ultrasound matches to the uh, stereotactic target that we're going to treat. These procedures have to be extremely precise. If they're a one or two millimeters off, it won't stop the tremor. So it has to be extremely precise. Now that we've adjusted it, watch this ultrasound transducer. We'll see where it's focused now. So that's why we like the idea of, of trying out this technology on someone with tremor where we could actually see if we're uh, really stopping the tremor with... Of the, of the transducer nicely matches the uh, stereotactic target. You can hear now the MRI is going off and pretty soon we'll see the, uh, the treatment will start and you'll see the temperature rise and it'll start to come back down. We only turn the ultrasound on for 10 seconds and then it'll start to cool off. So here you can see the MRI is engaging and it's going to start cooling off. It's just 10 seconds of ultrasound. The brain heats up right at that target, only at that spot, and then it starts to cool off. We do this a lot of times. We do a little bit of a treatment, check the patient, check the MRI, prescribe another treatment. Her reading, you can see that this focus is starting to heat up here. It's getting red, and then it starts to cool off. Basically, uh, just did a few low energy sonications that increase the temperature just a little bit at the focus just to make sure that we're focused uh, focusing the ultrasound in the right place Here you can see it's increased the temperature to about 50 degrees at the at the maximal spot and that's starting to ultrasounds turned off and it's starting to, to cool off the, the tissues cooling off There you can see the patient's tremor, so we're checking her inside the magnet after one she of these sonications. Just a little bit of numbness in her fingertips, and that's, that's very important for us. That tells us that probably this area that we're targeting is a millimeter or two um, uh, off in the posterior direction. So uh, we're going to adjust the, the focus of the ultrasound by just a millimeter and a half in the anterior direction. I bet that'll be a more ideal tremor spot. So the patient uh, said her fingers were tingling is, uh, and her tremor didn't stop, so she we knew we were off by a millimeter or so. We readjusted it. So we're going to treat it one more time. And, and uh, then after we made that adjustment, then her, then I think it starts to show that her uh, tremor stopped. So now we're, uh, now we're checking the temperature Sorry, around a little slow. the focus. You can see but as we move the temperature cursor, we get a, an assessment of what the temperature it reached in that area of the brain. Really, at the hottest spot, it reached 56 degrees. Touch my finger. The trim is starting to get better, and then we prescribe more, we have a few more treatments here. 
uh, we did an MRI to check it at the end. And then we take her out of the MRI, and um, there you can see her. This is her after the after the treatment. And so this is this is an incredible technological event. I think what what happened is we sent a thousand beams of ultrasound through the head. We focused them to a spot in deep inside the brain of about a millimeter or two. We actually were off by a little bit, uh, just a millimeter and a half. The patient told us that her finger was tingling, but her tremor didn't stop. And we refocused it by a millimeter and a half, a thousand beams, and then stopped her tremor. So I think that, not that we invented all of the technology, but I think it illustrates that when we match a technological uh the, you know the technology to a clinical problem that we really can can do a powerful you know powerful treatment or see a powerful event. So I thought even, even our earliest patients we saw some of this happen and that gives a lot of enthusiasm to really pursue it uh, with more vigor. So we we organized uh, we did that back in 2011. There were a couple of groups around the world that then replicated what we did and we organized uh, a group a team of uh, centers from around the world, there are eight centers, uh, to, to really do a study, a large study, to try to prove this to kind of the medical community or scientific community. So we did a, a randomized controlled trial. That's a, that's a very rigorous clinical trial where the patients uh, and their raters or the assessors don't know which treatment they're getting. And uh, it, was, it was convincingly a very positive event. Um, you know, we would see this type of thing, like you saw in the video, where they had a severe tremor and not so much tremor afterwards. Uh, most importantly for the patients, um, they have the big quality of life gains. This is a quality life scale uh, for people with tremor, and you can see their speaking activities and hobbies and work life all improved at least 50% or so when we stopped their dominant hand tremor. These are some of the disabilities we measure uh, eating and writing and dressing and those types of things that we take for granted, but these people have difficulty with. So, so a lot of quality of life or functional gains uh, from the procedure. And so that was uh, that led to a very positive trial. You know, um, uh, you know, we were really happy that the the prestigious journals, medical journals, and academic journals accepted it. But nowadays, with social media, I think you know you could see the the impact that it had this. The New England Journal of Medicine, you know, publishes their social media imprint of our article, and a lot of people tweeted it and pinged it and that type of thing. So uh, we were happy about that. Most importantly, really within a year or so, the FDA approved it as a new as a new procedure uh, for people with essential tremor, and so that was really we were excited about that. We got a real barrage of interest from the patients, but. It had the, the story's not over yet. It's now an FDA-approved uh, procedure, but it's not a Medicare reimbursed procedure. So all these patients are having to wait till it gets through more regulatory hurdles uh, till Medicare approves it. Then your insurance company will approve it. So we're we have a procedure that's approved but not paid for. So um, we're we're optimistic. We think within a year or so it'll be reimbursed. So I'm going to switch gears and talk about Parkinson's. This is kind of like a cousin to essential tremor. I think more people are familiar with Parkinson's than essential tremor, but essential tremor is more common. Uh, but as, as Yanni alluded to, the goals for the treatment of Parkinson's, really like any other disease, is to cure it. Um, uh, the number one goal for, for, for disease would be to cure it. Uh, neuroprotection is important. He, he alluded to that with the Alzheimer's studies he's doing. Maybe if you can't cure it, maybe you could prolong it or protect someone from getting it or getting it very in, 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 a, in an aggressive way. So for Parkinson's disease, we don't have a cure. We don't have any drugs or, or procedures that prolong or protect the brain against it. All the procedures that we have are palliative or symptom management, you know, where we try to ease the burden of symptoms for patients. And this is very common with a lot of diseases. So uh, we, we've also looked at this procedure. Uh, th I, I would say our Parkinson's studies are one step behind our central tremor studies. We've now done a pilot study. This is our uh, 
the results of our pilot study, which showed that we could uh, improve Parkinson's tremor. Um, these are the, this is the improvements, about 67% improvement, although we did see some patients that had a fake procedure, a sham procedure, had some improvements as well. You know, Parkinson's patients are very sensitive to dopamine, and just the expectation of being in a, in a, in a trial can cause dopamine release. So, uh, but nevertheless, we can, we're having similar uh, effects with uh, Parkinson's tremor. Parkinson's is more, it is a disease with more complexity than central tremor. It's not just a tremor problem. There are a lot of other symptoms. And depending on which circuits of the brain we target, we can target different symptoms. So this is the, this is the procedure we did uh, for Parkinson's tremor. There's a different area of the brain that we could target for dyskinesia problems. Dyskinesias, you might see people with a lot of writhing movements from uh, chronic dopamine use. Um, we can stop that problem as well. And then here's a, a, a third area or third kind of target of the brain that we sometimes will use uh, for Parkin different Parkinson's symptoms. Just recently, uh, my partner, Nathan Fountain, uh, has uh, kind of uh, spearheaded this trial on epilepsy. Um, there are some epilepsies that uh, come from deep, deep areas of the brain that we could target with, with focused ultrasound. This is a very small little nodule. It's kind of a congenital nodule of the brain that can cause a difficult epilepsy problem. And, and I think it's very amenable to being... Uh, treated or targeted with th with this technology. We haven't treated anybody yet in this uh, trial, but it's a fairly newly opened trial. Just uh, a week or two ago, we submitted uh, another proposal or protocol to the FDA. All these trials are monitored by the FDA for safety, um, but for uh, neuropathic pain problems, these are pain problems that come from injuries to the nervous system. They're very difficult to treat with medicines or procedures. So we think that uh, you know, some of the circuitry, the pain circuitry of the brain is known, and we think if we target uh, an area of the brain uh, that, we, that, that, these, that involves these, the pain circuitry, that we could alleviate some of the pain problems with neuropathic pain conditions. This is a colleague in Zurich, Switzerland, who, who's been able to do this with other techniques uh, and so we're going to try to replicate that with focused ultrasound. And then I'll just end with uh, one, one other new concept. Uh, and it's really a laboratory concept that we like to bring into the, uh, to the clinic. Uh, we appreciate Dr. Shubnick has helped us uh, really build this laboratory that's just going to start hopefully this summer. And this is a laboratory that will be uh, studying the use of ultrasound to manipulate the brain circuits, or we call it neuromodulation. It's basically, can we, can we target a circuit of the brain and maybe turn it off temporarily or turn it on? And so this would be an event that would be uh, uh, very controlled we could, we could, and reversible or adjustable. So, so, for instance, could we turn a memory circuit off or on? And so... Uh, we've had a little bit of, of uh, experience with this uh, at, a, I would say, a rudimentary level. Um, we got our first NIH grant, a small grant to, to do this, but we're now building a bigger laboratory to try, to try to do this. This is using ultrasound in a different way. What I just showed you is when we, the, the use of high-intensity focused ultrasound, where we focus ultrasound beams at a very high intensity and we make an ablation in the brain to knock out an abnormal circuit of the brain. This is used in very low intensity ultrasound. It's ultrasound like you would see uh, with a sonogram, something that's very benign or, or non-invasive, uh, where we'd use a very different type of ultrasound uh, to turn on these brain circuits or turn them off. So I think this is a very powerful um, technique that could be used in the laboratory and it certainly translated into the clinic or into patients. Uh, and there's just, there's just a little bit of uh, success in doing this uh, in, in human subjects. This is, a, this is a group, this is one of our collaborators uh, that we're trying to work with more and more. He's been able to focus, uh, put an ultrasound transducer on, on the uh, sensory area of the brain and kind of elicit uh, numbness and tingling in the fingers. And that's kind of an early demonstration. He can turn it on and off. 
patients can't tell when it's on and off, so it's a blinded test, but it's very effective um, uh, in the experiments. This led to a, a, a major report. So I think this is going to have a lot of implications for what we do uh, in the hospital and in the clinic. So I'd like to acknowledge uh, all my partners. You know, like I said, this is a... Uh, a lot of sophisticated technology. There's no, really no one person that can run all, that, all the aspects of it. You know, we have all of our different areas of expertise that we have to assimilate now to tackle some of these clinical problems, especially difficult clinical problems. So this is a lot of our team. This is a, it's a big team of clinicians and, and scientists and engineers. And then most importantly, we really appreciate This is our first clinical trial uh, our patients, they all have their T-shirts of which number subject they were in the treatments. But uh, it was a really great event after we did our clinical trial. We brought all our patients together, and they, they uh, kind of enjoyed hearing about the results of the, the, the final trial. So I think I'll uh, stop there, and then we'll organize a panel. or uh, So we'll reconvene at the table. Thank you. Thank you. That was very interesting. Um, Dr. Elias, is, um, is the focused ultrasound creating a thermal ablation of the focal area? And the second part of that is, is it, is it permanent once you achieve results, or does it need to be repeated? Yeah, uh, oh, sorry. Um, yes, it, it's a thermal ablation. It's a thermal ablation, um, and we'd like for it to be permanent. You know, as soon as we do it, uh, Within minutes, the brain tries to heal itself. So the brain will try to, you know, if, we, if we're trying to knock out an abnormal circuit of the brain, the brain will try to heal itself. But hopefully most of the time, we can knock it out and it's permanent. In our, in our first clinical trial, we, had, we made small ablations. We had three patients that had a pretty decent recurrence of their tremor. It was still 50% improved, but they did have some recurrence. I, I like this technology because... Um, I think if we can make it fast enough and easy enough for the patient, if you didn't have to have your head shaved or put into the, you know, the head holder, and if it was fast, if it's 30 minutes or an hour, our first treatments were five or six hours, and now we can do it in two. So if we can do it in 30 minutes or an hour, I think that we could deliver very small conservative lesions and come back on another day if somebody needs more. You know, not instead of exposing everybody to a big treatment or, you know, like with surgery, if you're going to have some type of surgery, you, have, you get psyched up and you go in and you're like, this is the one time I'm going to have the surgery and I don't want to come back ever again. I think if we could make this procedure benign enough, we could, we could uh, uh, repeat it as needed and not expose people to much risk. What about the use of lasers? Have you done any work there? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So we, we do, uh, hey, that's actually very, very relevant. About the same time that uh, Focus Ultrasound uh, hit our clinics, uh, there was a company that introduced a laser, and uh, it's being used now. Um, and it, it can do very similar things. It causes thermal ablation. And um, the laser can make a larger ablation, so it's being used more for brain tumors than the focus ultrasound. The focus ultrasound is very precise, but I think that if the focus ultrasound... So we do use the laser. Um, we have that also. Um, we've done a lot of nice laboratory studies, I think, that compared the, the procedures. They really act the same way. They're both thermal ablations, but... Uh, the technology is a little bit different now, but I think they're going to become more close. I think the laser will become more 
precise and targeted, and I think the focus ultrasound will become more uh, large uh, uh, for if it's needed. Would any uh, heart medicine to reduce the blood pressure by uh, enlarging the arteries, and therefore you're going to reduce the pressure? Would that also affect those lymphatic uh, uh, tubes that you have in your brain so that then you can clean out the waste better? It's an interesting question. You know, we just had a neurosurgeon in our lab. He just finished his uh, uh, one year of work, and so he was actually looking at the how uh, blood pressure in the brain uh, right, changes the function of lymphatic vessels, and it seems like the two are connected because if you increase intracranial pressure, you may even collapse those lymphatics. And uh, so that's what we're looking at it now. I don't, I don't have any intelligent answer to give you, but I think that the two are connected. Oh, I see a, I see a question. be able to lower the, uh, to increase the diameter of the lymphatic vessels, and that would give you a better flow, and all of that take toxins out of your body everywhere. Yes, so I will tell you what. Um, if you ablate lymphatic vessels, I mean, this is too loud, no? Yes. <laughs> Maybe it's <coughs> talk to each other. Huh? <laughs> so, so if you ablate, I'll give you a little more complicated answer then because it seems like you, you, know, you know the system better than I do. Um, so if you ablate lymphatic vessels, if you just ablate the vessels, you kill them, you destroy them, there is no change in intracranial pressure, which tells us that the lymphatic vessels are not the main source that removes the fluid, that removes the CSF. I think that the major part of the CSF still goes through the sinuses, and the molecular, molecular I mean, so the molecules within the CSF are being drained through the lymphatics. So if you don't have lymphatics, you will have accumulation of the waste, but not increase in the pressure. So I think by making them wider, you will not change intracranial pressure, if I answered your question now. No, because I think the pressure again, the pressure of the CSF, CSF as a, as a volume will still be primarily removed through the sinuses, not through the lymphatics. We can talk maybe later, but yeah, yeah. I'm going to confess to being an English major, so I can ask a non-intelligent question. But you implied that there was um, that somebody asked whether or not get, getting their head massage would make a difference. But I'm sort of curious with all the ideas of alternative medicine and, and what yoga or breathing or meditation does. It sort of makes sense to me that it could have some effect on how the brain cleans itself out. Just curious if there's an intersection between your scientific work and the alternative health work. Yeah, you know, so uh, all my wife is into alternative uh, healing a little bit. She's a computer scientist on the side, but she's also, <laughs> she's also a healer. I've uh, seen him do it. <laughs> did you? No. no. I did, but you couldn't see me. It wasn't my house. Um, you know, if I told you that this is all wrong and this is, you know, I could say I'm a scientist, I don't believe in, those, in these things, uh, I would be lying to myself. Okay, so I think the link is there. Unfortunately, there is also a lot of uh, charlatanism, so people don't do it right. And so I think the research needs to be more rigorous there, right? I mean, you can't really talk to a mouse, you cannot really do yoga to a mouse, and therefore we cannot really study the mechanisms. But, start, but things like lymphatic massage, you know, people, people, so you do it for lymphedema, right? When there is an, so after there was a removal of a, of a, of a breast, of a breast tumor, right? If you have lymphedema, what people do, the treatment is, is, is lymphatic massage. Now, can it work for the brain? I don't know. Can you massage deep enough through the skull? I don't know, right? But, this, but maybe you can. It definitely, so we, we talked with Jeff, you know, and we said, okay, can we deliver a very, very, very uh, uh, light uh, uh, waves of the ultrasound and to maybe, you know, not to massage, but to shake those vessels. Well, now his lab will be in the same building as mine, so hopefully we'll do something. So, yeah, I'm not saying that, the, I mean, it's probably something in there, right? I mean, we've been always saying a healthy mind and a healthy body. So healthy body is the immune system, right? So. If you, if you maintain your immune system healthy, then your brain will also be healthy. And our data suggests that. 
But again, to prove it, really, it's a little bit more difficult. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, in denial of uh, all the Western medicines and, 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 and alternative healing. Another question along those lines. Again, congratulations on developing this mouse model of, of Alzheimer's, or at least the dysfunction of the lymphatics. Any pharmacologic targets um, have been identified so that on the human side, there may be some early uh, clinical trials or phase one or phase two trials uh, that are in the works? Yeah, very good question. So, so the, the molecule I showed you that we're treating with both virally and with a with gel, actually, this molecule is a, pharmac it's a pharmacological molecule. It's a, it's a VGFC. We have patents on that. And uh, so we are now going into this uh, second phase. We're trying to find small molecules with the great help of a school of medicine. Hopefully in a year we will be in, I don't know if it's fully phase one, but this will be in the, maybe in the, in the company stage. That's, that's the goal. Uh, we sequenced those meningeal, we isolated meningeal lymphatic endothelial cells, and there's only 40 you can get from a mouse, so we need to isolate quite a lot to sequence them. And we compared them to lymphatic cells from skin and from diaphragm. And so skin and diaphragm look very, very similar, and the lymphatic from the brain from the meninges look very different. And there's about 200 genes which are uniquely expressed on those vessels. About 10 of them seem like pharmacologically potentially targetable targets. So we're now actually doing, uh, so the, the first thing we do, we're actually using our CRISPR-Cas approach to, to, to target those 10 genes and see whether we change the function of the vessel. And if we do, then actually we can go back and start finding uh, therapeutic, uh, I mean, uh, pharmacological compounds to target those genes. So yes, we have a long list of potential, uh, a long library of potential targets, but no, we are too far from, uh, of course, clinical trials yet. a question about the autism research you were talking about and about uh, immunization or immunoresponse and uh, the beneficial effect on autism. Uh, what's going on with that? Um, so, you know, uh, when we published, uh, when we, I mean, every paper we publish that shows the connection between the immune system and the brain, right, uh, always there is this, uh, somebody comes up with the, with the, with the, with the vaccines and, and immunity. Uh, I can only tell you, as a scientist, I can only tell you what's out there in the literature, right? There are three very well, very well performed studies that show that, if anything, there is a reduced risk of autism after vaccinations. I think the last one with 60,000 kids showed 0.8, like so 20% less autism in vaccines. Um, that's the data that is, is out there, right? I mean, if somebody faked that data, then I'm talking with you about fake data, but that's the data that's out there. So there's no results today that anyhow support that, that vaccines would cause an autism. So, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, so yeah. Can you, can you give them a chronic fever? Oh, I see what you're saying. Sorry, I didn't understand. I didn't, okay, I, you know, I was so, I'm so dreading about this anti-vaxxer questions that I'm kind of, <laughs> I bring them up myself. Sorry about that. <laughs> Actually, our university PR office told me, never respond in writing to them, people. Let us know what, let us see what you write. And so I'm very, very careful. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so to your question now, um, there is a clinical trial going on at Einstein in New York uh, where they put the kids in the jacuzzi, 40 degrees jacuzzi, and they test their performance. Uh, so the first question I asked, actually I know the guy, Eric Hollander, I said, Eric, why jacuzzi, why not sauna? So the head is also exposed to the heat, right? He goes, we didn't think about it. Well, <laughs> so what we do with that, so we actually have a study now, which we haven't published it yet. So we put our mice now, uh, so we have uh, autistic mouse models, whatever, whatever it means, so social impairment. If we put them in, if you wish, sauna, we, we make them sauna, we put them overnight in a sauna, Next day, we see a very improved social behavior, which doesn't last for too long. But the beauty is, and I'm now telling the data which we haven't published yet, if you take plasma from the heated mouse, we call them heated mice, right, because they've been like for a night in jacuzzi, in, in sauna, they're really heated. If you take plasma from these mice and you inject them into autistic mice, you see some improvements. So that's amazing, but, but now, what's the molecule? that we're transferring. So we know, the we know the molecular weight of the molecule, but I mean, you know, it's, a, it's a dozens and dozens of molecules in this plasma. Which one is the one? We don't know. So we, we, we tried a few, we're, we, the guess were wrong. So we, we, now just, we will probably just try to publish this finding as is. It won't be as a, 
as we won't go as high because there is no molecular link, but but yeah, it's 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 real. There is something there. Is there any um, work at UVA that you know of on neurodegenerative diseases um, being treated with photobiomodulation or sort of lower level laser treatment or LED treatment? That's yours. That's, that's, that's for Jeff, right? Yeah. Either one of you. <laughs> <laughs> treatment. I don't do treatment. <laughs> the answer is no. Final question? If you thermoablate an area of the brain and you get scar tissue as, as a post-op complication, do they get seizures as a consequence of that, and then are you buying off on another problem because you cured one problem? No. Um, the, um, we very carefully study the ablation process, and they don't get much of a scar. They, get, they don't get – it doesn't make much of a scar in the brain. Um, it does make – uh, it is a little bit like a stroke. It's like a little tiny stroke. Like, it behaves like a stroke, a small stroke. Um, but it doesn't leave much of a scar, you know, by a few months into it. Uh, but they don't develop seizures. It's a different circuitry of the brain that's uh, different, distinct from uh, the seizure circuitry. Okay, so I think I'm being called to wrap it up, but I know that there's still some questions out there. So if anyone has a question that hasn't been answered, please feel free to come up to us afterward, um, and we can try to help field those. But really quickly, I wanted to thank our panelists today.